The Guardian. If we do not act now to increase the opportunity for food security, we may never catch up. Let's move relentlessly ahead in advancing food security. Given the needs for dealing with hunger and nutrition, but also the opportunities to make agriculture a new source of jobs and source of income, this is the year to put food first. I'm confident that concrete and timely solutions can be found. I trust that we can count on the commitment of all member nations to eradicate hunger and make the world a better place for all humanity. The World Bank says soaring food prices have already pushed millions more people into poverty this year. Are we at the brink of a new global food crisis? France has made food a priority of its presidency at both the G8 and the G20 this year, and Oxfam is launching a new international campaign on the global food system. But faced with a problem this big, where do you start? In this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll look at what needs to be done to stop millions more going hungry. We'll look at India, where more than a quarter of the world's hungry people live, and where the government is working on a new national food security bill. We'll examine the role of smallholder farmers and ask what grassroots communities around the world are already doing to address the issue of food security. But first, I'm joined by Felicity Lawrence, our special correspondent on food for The Guardian. Felicity, you've just returned from South and Central America, looking at the human cost of hunger and the global food trade. Tell us what you saw. Well, first I went to Guatemala in Central America uh, because it's a huge exporter of food. It's actually the fifth largest exporter of sugar in the world and it's a big producer of bananas uh, and there's a huge biofuels rush going on there. There's lots of palm oil being planted. Uh, And yet it's got one of the highest rates of malnutrition in Latin America. Uh, About half of all children under five are chronically malnourished uh, and that figure is even higher among the indigenous peoples. Uh, And what happens there is that a tiny elite of landowners and transnational corporations are capturing all the value of the food chain. So although it's got these tremendous resources, it's very fertile and productive, it can't feed its own people. I met lots of uh, families out there. One of them was Domingo Tamupsis and his wife and children. Our children are dying because we don't have the means. The money doesn't stretch and the pay is very low. What we make doesn't put food on our plates and we can't imagine how I'd be able to pay if a child got sick or at times when my wife gets sick, I'm not able to say to her, I'm going to take you to a private hospital. And we don't have anywhere else to go. We can't steal because they'd kill us. I work in a sugarcane plantation. I work until 4pm, sometimes 5pm. It varies. They put pressure on us. We have no choice as we don't really have anywhere else to go. We do not have work elsewhere. We just go home, get up early every day, and the money doesn't stretch, even to buy food sometimes. A harrowing story from Domingo Tamupsis. Did you meet the rest of his family, Felicity? Yes, his wife was a a lovely 23-year-old woman called Marina and she looked about half that age actually. She was obviously suffering from chronic malnutrition herself and said that there were several, you know, often she had to go without food to feed the children. Uh, And she had a six-year-old and a little two-year-old who uh, looked more like the age of a one-year-old in the UK. She had that classic sign of chronic malnutrition, a very distended belly and sort of hollow 
creases around the mouth when she tried to smile. Uh, and the wife had this very sad story of uh, giving birth to a stillborn son uh, at eight months uh, of her pregnancy, uh, which sounded as though it had probably been related to the fact that she had been so chronically malnourished for such a long time. And they didn't have any money to go to the hospital that they had to borrow. And then once she'd uh, had the baby, uh, she'd been operated on and the stillborn baby had been uh, taken out, they had absolutely no money to get back home and the doctor had to give them the money for the bus. But I think one of the the most awful parts of the story was that this is this is a family where there is work. It's not uh, somebody starving in Africa with no access to any resources. He was working on a big international uh, sugarcane plantation, which was producing uh, bioethanol for the international market. Uh, and he was working 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. But the pay is so low that they couldn't even afford to feed their family. We've heard a lot about how climate change is affecting agriculture. Did you get a sense of that in Guatemala? Yes. In a lot of the uh, villages, they talked actually about, quite ironically, about getting sunburn that they never used to get just by being out. The sun is obviously much hotter. Uh, The big shift that's had a very dramatic effect on their food security is the fact that the rains tend to come very late now. And when they do come, they come in a very, very intense uh, bursts of rain, uh, which completely disrupts the traditional cycle of the crop that they depend on for their staple corn so that uh, last year they lost most of their maize crop uh, when it was washed away uh, by the storms and that whole impact of climate change has been made much worse by the big uh, international plantations because they divert the rivers to irrigate their crops and then when these really intense sort of dramatic climate events like climate change take place the uh, water floods the rivers tries to get back to its original course and their land is flooded in between one of the people i met was maria raquel vasquez who's the coordinator of an alliance of rural women called uh, madre tierra and she described how their crops have been affected by climate change but also how they were learning to with just different techniques and technologies to change the cycle of planting to try and cope with that climate change. In the Costa Sur, specifically, the people who live on the In the Costa Sur specifically, the people who live on the seashore are hungry. These people don't have land to grow their own food and live from fishing, so yes, there is malnutrition there. But also, the people who live and work on the farms are going hungry because they don't have the land to grow food. These people are suffering a lot because the price of products has gone up, but their wages don't ever go up. From the research we did as women, we are aware that we now have to rediscover our ancestors' farming practices and knowledge, which would help us to guarantee good health for our families through healthy eating. It is not the same to eat tinned food or a frozen chicken or chicken injected with hormones, for example. It is not the same eating one of those chickens as it is eating a chicken that has been hand-reared in your backyard. This can have a marked difference in the health of people. For this reason, we are, through our information workshops, looking at how to recover our ancestral farming practices. We are fighting to regain the old farming methods. You also visited Argentina, and that's a much more prosperous country. How is the situation different? there are rural communities better off 
Well, Argentina, along with Brazil, is the is the new frontier. And it has a real feel of frontier about it. The uh, soya plantations are expanding constantly, and the area that we're all brought up in school geography lessons to think of as sort of big cattle grazing, the pampas, are being given over to this really intensive uh, agro-industrial soya production. Uh, and the trade is dominated by the big transnational grain traders who are building more and more port terminals, these huge buildings, think, think the size of Battersea Power Station, and you can imagine how big they are. So you can see this sort of enormous push to increase uh, global production. Uh, but most of that is, is this tradition, this, this agro-industrial model where you produce soya to feed livestock, to make process f- or, or to produce uh, f- oils for processed food. But it's not a terribly efficient use of land in terms of feeding the world. You get much more protein if you, if you actually fed the grains to people rather than feeding them to animals. Um, and, and the other thing that, that's very striking when you go there is that this boom in uh, agri- agribusiness has made the big landowners very rich, but it's increased rural poverty. Uh, and in, in many of the areas where soya has taken over, there used to be uh, fruit, fruit and vegetable production, and there are very, very high rates of unemployment now. Soya comes in, it's highly mechanised, doesn't really provide jobs, but there aren't other jobs for, for the people to go to, so you've got high rural unemployment uh, and people dispossessed moving into shanties, which weren't there before. Now, one of the arguments in favour of that model of agri-export and agribusiness is is that the profits will trickle down. You get good growth for the country, and indeed Argentina is growing very rapidly, uh, having recovered from its debt crisis. But the problem is the profits are not being distributed. But there's a big debate going on there about food sovereignty, who has access to resources, particularly land and water, and who should benefit from them. And then Coming into that mix are the Chinese, who are very busy making sure that they're securing their own supplies, uh, and they've just done a big deal in Patagonia, where they've uh, taken options. Uh, in a, the deal's quite kind of unclear and, and slightly under the table, but the uh, Chinese seem to have come in and taken an option on 320,000 hectares of land, uh, which they uh, may well turn into soya production. That's an area about the size of Cornwall. It's absolutely vast. So there's a big debate going on there about whether that kind of foreign land ownership is acceptable. Uh, the federal government wants to stop it and is trying to introduce legislation. Thank you very much, Felicity, for coming in and talking about your visit. So we've heard there about the causes of food insecurity and the human cost of hunger. To discuss these issues, I'm now joined by Chief Executive of Oxfam GB, Barbara Stocking, and Oxfam Professor and Chair of the Expert Committee behind the Foresight Global Food and Farming Report, Charles Godfrey. Also, we have economist J.R.T. Ghosh, Professor at New Delhi's Nero University. Hello to you all. Hello. 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 Barbara, let's, let's start with you. Oxfam is going to be launching a new campaign on the global food system. Why now? And what exactly are you hoping to achieve? Right. Why now? Because it's becoming clear that although we were making gains in getting uh, fewer people who are hungry in the world, in the last couple of years since the food price crisis, it has been going up. And everything suggests that it's going to go up in future. Um, The population is increasing, more land has been using for biofuels, uh, prices are going up through commodity speculation and all sorts of reasons. That means that the poorest people in the world are going to get the rawest deal. And that will go on as land and water uh, get uh, scarcer, as climate change really kicks in for them. So we think the system's bust. 
basically, and we want to change that system. We want to change it both at the global level, the big decisions that are made in how the food system is run, but also most particularly in helping small farmers really produce well for themselves and for everyone else. And there's a political point, a political moment right now, isn't there? I mean, there's the G8 and the G20, and this issue is on the agenda. So you want to kind of develop a kind of grassroots campaign to really put pressure on the politicians to tackle the issues? Yes, definitely. As you say, G20 uh, is great this year because uh, President Sarkozy has taken on the food security issue. And there are a number of things that that can come forward at this time. One is uh, much more transparency in where food is in the system because it's so concentrated in the hands of a few companies and who are who are actually the traders in the food system. So we need more transparency and regulation of actually these food markets. But we'd look to stop the mandates on biofuels as well, the, 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 the crops that are being used not to feed people but to go in our tanks. That's taking away food as well. So there are a number of items this year uh, in G20 that can move forward. Plus we have Durban, um, the uh, climate change conference in December. We'll, we'll be really pressing for the climate finance to come through that can help poor people adapt to climate change, especially in these rural areas. Charles, what Barbara's just, just said is that the system is, is bust. Earlier this year, you, you were involved in a major UK report, which came out calling for radical changes to the global food system. So do you also think the system's bust? Yes, we used almost exactly the same language as, uh, as that. Um, the food system as it exists at the moment is just not sustainable. We cannot go on business as usual without there being really serious risks of uh, major disruptions in, in the future. We're at a period where uh, a couple of things are happening. As Barbara said, in low-income countries, the, pro- the uh, progress we were making to reducing the fraction that are hungry has been reduced really in the last four or five years since uh, food prices began to rise. And if one looks at the middle and high-income countries, we're moving from a period where the real policy issues were how do we deal with overproduction in the richer countries to how we deal with burgeoning demand. And I think we're seeing that in the echoes of the food price volatility at the moment. And populations are going up. And especially in places like Southeast Asia, we're seeing people becoming wealthier, which in many ways is a good thing. But wealthier people demand food that has a larger imprint on the environment. And what's happening in the medium and high-income countries then has ramifications for the people in the poorest countries. One of the things I always find really disturbing is the amount that people throw away and waste in developed countries like the UK. And yet, you know, there's a billion people in the world who are going hungry every day. How how do you connect that sort of waste in one part of the world with that desperate need in the other part? Is there a connection? There is a connection, but it's a complex connection because uh, the reason why people are hungry is largely because they don't have the money to buy food, the access to food, sometimes the social food. So it's not just a question of the amount of food that's produced. But in trying to reduce food prices and trying to have food available, then there are a couple of, uh, to use a cliche, low-hanging fruit. One is to reduce waste. In high-income countries, that's largely due to waste by consumers and in the restaurant trade uh, and things like that. In poor countries, it's because um, people don't have the technologies and the um, the money to invest in in, uh, in uh, storing food and protecting it during storage. And I would like to uh, emphasize again what Barbara said, that another thing that is just crazy what we're doing at the moment is uh, subsidizing biofuel production, which is not making a contribution to reducing greenhouse gases and is all, uh, it's having all sorts of worrying per- perverse effects on the global food system. 
Jayati, a lot of people talk about the, the, the food crisis and, and end up saying more food needs to be produced. Is that your view or do you think actually this is more to do with distribution and markets? Well, it has a lot to do with distribution and markets, and I'd like to just take up one of the issues which has possibly been left out of the discussion. I agree with everything that's been said so far, but a big issue is actually the corporate invasion of agribusiness and conversion of a lot of what used to be relatively sustainable practices into completely unsustainable patterns of both consumption and distribution. You mentioned food waste, and that's a big problem. What is really intriguing is that it's a growing problem, not just in rich countries, but also in the big cities of the developing south, in, among the richer groups. And this is really driven by corporate retail. A large part of the food waste that we see is because of cultivation practices that ignore traditional uses of biomass and all the byproducts that small farmers used to do automatically and because it was very much part of their tradition. Conversion of all that, because that is simply not recognized and it's not even considered, and it's completely wasted in the whole production and distribution chain, and then to very unsustainable patterns of consumption which are actively promoted by agribusiness. So you find consumers in Shanghai or in Jakarta or in New Delhi behaving very similar to those in, in Western Europe or North America. Barbara, are some developing countries handling these food issues better than others? Uh, who, who gets top marks? Has anyone worked out a way of doing this? Uh, well, I don't know about top marks, but the, the countries that we would say were top were probably Brazil and Vietnam. And Brazil uh, has done two things which are very important. One of them is to make sure that poor people have enough money to buy food. And they did a payment system called the Bolsa Familia, which really got um, thousands and thousands of people um, actually out of poverty, but also able to eat. And that was a fantastic uh, way forward because so few countries in the, in the world have those sort of welfare systems in the developing world. So that was a real marker. They also invested in small farmer agriculture and that has dramatically improved production as well. So they're good. And the other one that's uh, very good indeed um, is Vietnam. Again, a real investment in small farmers, but also making sure that their policies are really about pro-poor. They're getting to poor people and they've brought that off as well. Well, and are now exporting uh, very well themselves. So it is possible to do this. It's not that they're, it, somehow it can't be done in this system, even in the market system. It can be done. These countries have showed that it's perfectly possible. I want to turn to India, Jayati, because it's, it's the world's largest democracy and a fast-growing economy, and yet a quarter of the world's hungry people live there. And you've just described uh, a situation where in the urban middle classes, the same sort of wasteful habits are developed, have developed as in the developing, developed world. So what, what's the solution in India? Could India well, copy some of Brazil and Viet Vietnam's uh, policies? Well, I think a critical thing is actually promoting smallholder agriculture. I think, you know, this whole focus on large corporate types of agricultural production is, is really very misplaced in countries like India. So a very big thing that we have to learn is really about getting, promoting and making viable peasant cultivation once again. But in fact, these are con issues that are being actively considered in India. In fact, there's at the moment a food security bill which is on the anvil. It's being discussed. There is one draft bill that is on the table already, and many have come up with alternatives. This is a very interesting bill because it's really promoting food security both through distribution and production. In other words, one major leg of it is actually the public distribution of grain. 
there's a, a commitment to provide 35 kilograms of grain to every household. There's a lot of debate. Do you provide it only to the poor or to all households, but at an affordable price? Now, to get that, that means you have to promote more production and promote more uh, market surplus from the peasantry. So there are active policies to ensure that farmers actually produce food. There's a way of incentivizing food production. There are big debates about this. There are some people who are saying, well, we should just give a cash transfer. And the Bolsa Familia is often cited as an example of a successful cash transfer. I think this misses the point, which is that when food prices are rising very sharply, a cash transfer can't really ensure that you cover the price of that food even over a six-month or one-year period. And uh, many poor people actually therefore prefer a direct grain transfer. Secondly, if you want to promote food production, you have to incentivize it. So you have to make it profitable for farmers to get into food rather than cash crops. And that means providing a ready market for them. Those are very key points that are relevant also in sub-Saharan Africa, Charles. Um, Here's a question from our talk point uh, on the website. Um, Ag for Impact, who asked, what advice would you give to a European government donor wishing to make effective investments to support sustainable agricultural development in sub-Saharan Africa? Charles, have you got any suggestions for that? Well, to to go one stage further back, I I think that's an interesting argument because there has been a trend for aid donors not to put money into agriculture. And I think that in the Foresight Report, and I know this is something that Oxfam has argued for uh, uh, for a long time now, for a, a sort of rejuvenation of money going into uh, agricultural development. Agriculture has a sort of triple benefit. It produces the food. It um, puts money into rural areas, which are hard to get through investment, for example, in industry. And because much of the food uh, throughout low-income countries, and especially in Africa, is produced by women and some other sectors of society where it is harder to get money for. It has a third benefit in targeting money, again, if done properly, into into those areas. Charles, you're, you're right that there's been not much attention on agriculture uh, by aid donors uh, in the last few decades. One of the problems now is that there's a very polarised debate between those who say the future for our agriculture has got to be industrialised, mechanised, large corporations need to get involved to make those kinds of investments. And then on the other hand, people saying, no, 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 peasant agriculture has to be viable, as JRT was just describing. Can you give us some insight into, into that sort of very, these very polarised positions which often dominate? Yes, and of course the, the, the two ends of the spectrum are overstating their cases. Uh, if one looks at the spectrum of uh, agricultural production throughout low-income countries, it's amazingly complex. And I don't think anyone would say that there's a single solution that's going to uh, be appropriate for, for all areas. I, I think everyone would also agree that uh, smallholder farming is going to be an extremely important part of the solution. And how smallholder farming can be Uh, both encouraged, how yields can go up, how sustainability can be increased is absolutely critical. But there will be be circumstances where more large-scale agriculture will also be appropriate. And Barbara mentioned uh, Brazil, which is uh, a a fascinating example of where they've done excellent things in many parts of the country with smallholder farming, but in other areas they have done, they they have invested in, 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 I hesitate to say industrial farming, but larger scale farming. And if it's done right, and if particularly the land rights of, uh, of smallholders can be uh, can be protected, then some of the money that's flowing into agriculture can provide some of the 
economic investment that is missing in so many places in low-income countries and it can also improve the human and social capital. But as Jayati said, if done wrong, it can be a disaster. It can, it can really hit the uh, poorest people in the community. Earlier in the podcast, we heard about a return to traditional small-scale farming in Guatemala. Uh, what are local communities already doing to address the issues of food security? Barbara, you've put smallholder farmers at the centre of your new campaign. Why is that? Um, well, why, why that is, is because there are about half a billion farmers who are small farmers and they need to grow their own food and help in that whole set of needs for the in, in the global community but frankly if you take those all those people off the land you're going to have another massive run on the cities and you'll just end up having more and more urban poor people which is not not ideal and is not producing for the urban poor people that are there already so yes we've been promoting that very strongly not the saying as Charles has said that there aren't times when you can have those large investments in large farms but what we're looking for with the, the for money for the smallholder farmers really that the investment that they need they need a lot of support for example in small-scale irrigation schemes drip feed schemes are very good on um, uh, conserving water uh, schemes that actually bring in the rain water and, and keep that too you need rural roads right to the end of the farms where the farms are and perhaps most of all you need extension workers and as Charles said we need that to go to women farmers in particular because they always get less of any of the advantages that are being put out uh, through through these agricultural investments. So it's putting back into place all the kinds of investment in agricultural extension worker systems that got stripped out in the course of the 80s and 90s when when you know the IMF, the World Bank, insisted on structural adjustment programs that dismantled all of that kind of state infrastructure. Yes, and with an even greater need now, because of course with climate change, people have got to change what they have traditionally done in farming as well. So they will need advice on new ways of coping. Um, that, you know, what new crops are that are drought resistant, for example. Um, how they can double crop with different with different sorts of crops at different times. Um, the resilience that they need to face up to what's going to hit them with climate change. So um, even it was needed in the past, but if, if it was ever needed in the past, it's much more needed now with um, those those the difficulties coming up to face them. And if I could come in there, not only in low-income countries, we need a rejuvenation of extension services in high-income and middle-income countries to address exactly those challenges that Barbara mentioned. Um, and did you suggest, Charles, that that should be largely state-driven? Because I know, for example, in, in Uganda, the, the agricultural extension system was privatised and there's been a lot of problems around that. Is it the role of the state to ensure this kind of massive educational process? So extension, provide, extension provides information which uh, can both help the individual directly and can provide public goods, for example, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. In high-income countries, then uh, what I and the uh, report argued for was for a mixed model where there is an element of private and there's an element of public. Certainly for public goods, there has to be some state support. In low-income countries, then the people who require the information at least initially do not have the capital to pay for it. So it has to come from the state or from from, uh, from another body. So would you, would you argue... Charles and Barbara, that you know, the aid community has been very focused on building up education systems, building, building up health systems. What they now need to actually really engage with is the idea of building up state agricultural extension systems, which are, require perhaps as much aid uh, as, as educational health. 
Yeah, um, we'd certainly say that's that's absolutely vital at the moment. But I just wanted to add on maybe the point about the private sector, because certainly I don't think that the private sector works in delivering the the, the scale of extension services we're talking about here. But the private sector can have a very important role, particularly in the, the issue of buying into their supply chains, because they if they do this right, they can actually work with smallholder farmers to guarantee them a market over a period of time. And of course, the guarantee is always very important because farm, small farmers are always extremely worried about what monies they're going to get, whether you know what crops they're going to get in particular years. They can provide a real stability in, in the system. But actually, if the uh, private sector are working well, they may themselves also want to provide some of the agronomy support that small farmers need, as well as some business skills for them as well. So you can have a win-win with engagement of the private sector too. I, I think that works very well, especially for crops that are traded. But where it works less well is where where you're you're dealing with the very poorest people who are producing food for themselves and for the local markets rather than rather than uh, global markets yeah i agree with you can i can i come to you because this conversation has 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 become very very rural and a growing proportion of the world's population actually lives in cities are we in danger of, of kind of getting over preoccupied with the with the rural and the production side of this? What about urban households? How do they deal with food insecurity? Well, yeah, there are a couple of things I wanted to come in on this. No, we, we're not in danger of obsessing about the rural because it's been ignored for too long. And we really do have to bring the attention back to this. And I couldn't agree more that the donor community has to look Uh, directly at the public extension and research programs and and investment in agriculture. But I do feel that especially the international NGO community has to also address some international issues, which are not specifically, shall I say, you know, advising the developing world on how to go about its business, but really dealing with the, the mess that is at the international level. And there are really three things which are crucial. One of them has been talked about a lot. It's the financial regulation, and I'm sure everyone will agree that without immediate and effective regulation to control speculative activity in the commodity markets, we're going to keep getting this volatility. But along with that, there are a couple of other measures that really have to be argued for with much greater voice than we've heard so far. One of them is the IMF's compensatory financing facility, which is dormant which existed in the 1970s and which can easily be applied to provide immediate and unconditional finance to developing countries that import food. I'm surprised to see that nobody is making a demand for this among the international aid community. Second is the whole issue of strategic grain reserves. We really have to get governments and the international community actively to promote grain reserves that can be held in regional arrangements or internationally by IFAD or other groups that will actually allow countries to somehow mitigate this effect of extreme volatility and dramatic spikes in prices that we are observing. I do believe that these are things that the international donor community should also be arguing for. I'm going to move the, the, the discussion on here to another question from the website, which was from the Soil Association UK, who asked uh, for uh, the panel's thoughts on organic farming. Charles, could organic farming feed the world? The analysis we did as part of the Foresight report was um, came up with a fairly clear answer that no, it couldn't, that we do need to produce more food. But the organic movement has a a huge contribution to make to what the report concludes is the the critical thing that we need to do, sustainable intensification, to produce more food, but in a way that has a much smaller footprint on the environment. 
And I think what the organic movement has done over the years is to is to develop a variety of techniques that should become mainstream. I would also um, go to some of the wonderful things that are done in Southeast Asia, especially Vietnam, parts of, of Southeast Asia, uh, parts of southern China, where they have farming systems that are hugely efficient with very little waste, uh, bringing together production of livestock, production of crops, and production of, uh, of freshwater fish and, and uh, other aquatic things. Um, we, we have a lot to learn, both from uh, from the organic movement and from these areas and making a more sustainable agriculture. But I do not think that adopting uniformly uh, organic agriculture w would be the solution. I, I think there will be a real risk of, uh, of not enough food being produced. Another question from our talk point, IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural and Development, brought a very optimistic and cheerful note by saying that they think there's a growing belief that Africa can produce not only enough food to feed its own people, but enough to export and contribute to food security worldwide. Are you optimistic of this, Charles? Um, yes. If you, uh, I suspect Barbara's probably more an expert on this than me, but if you look at the different African countries, then it's very mixed about how much they invest in agriculture and the response and the um, responses they've got in increased production. Certainly, if you look at a country like Ghana, then it really shows what uh, what can happen there. One thing we were has, very sorry, if you could explain, has there been a big incre increase in productivity? In there years? has been, yes, and that's from investment by the, the by the state by a, a variety of different mechanisms, including and again going back to what Barbara said, making markets work, getting the infrastructure in them, it, it, getting the infrastructure into more rural areas, connecting people with with uh, with uh, 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 with larger markets. Right. There's a really kind of big task to be done here about the way Western developed com companies operate and you know food makes a lot of money for a lot of big companies and we we know that uh, and they are lobbying fast and hard how, how are you going to really bring about that kind of accountability of those corporate interests right well we will be challenging the private sector very very heavily but of course what we, we want to do that in a way when we've got absolutely all the data in front of us so that there's no question about you know we're just so exaggerating what the problem is being absolutely clear what the problem is both with uh, the grain traders on one side uh, but also the companies um, that are buying up land in, la in large volumes uh, in Africa we need to know exactly who they are, what the terms of those deals were, before we can say, you know, this company has really, really worked against the interests of the world and against poor people. So, But that is part of this campaign. Because it will be running through four years, different issues will be picked up like that at different times. And of course, we must use the opportunities of things like G20 meetings, where you can get movement from the global leaders to really push those particular things through at those times. The Food and Agriculture Organisation is about to elect its new Director General this summer. And in one word, perhaps or a few words, uh, I want to ask each of the panellists uh, what they think the new leader of the UN's food agency should be prioritising in their first year. JRT. Oh, I think basically uh, reducing the impact of corporate power in changing cultivation and consumption patterns and improving the viability of small agriculture. Very good. And Charles? Um, I'd like to go back to transparency, the point that, that Barbara made. Not only do we n not know enough about uh, grain stocks and things in private uh, companies, uh, grain stocks in China, for example, the, the country that holds the biggest grain stocks are a state secret. Until we have that transparency, and the FAA, FAO has a critical role to, be, to play here, we can't get the commodity markets to work properly. 
And the commodity markets, if they work properly, are actually uh, very helpful for food security. If they're regulated well, if they have proper liquidity, then they can act in favour of food security. And we need to get it in place for the markets to work. And I'd like to see the new FAO director really being the standard bearer for that. Excellent. And Barbara? The Food and Agriculture Organisation has a fantastic knowledge of, of all these issues. And what I would like to see is the new Director General saying, I want our best people out there on the ground, helping government set their own policies in food, helping them get their extension services working to do really the very best thing by small farmers. Well, that's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. For more ongoing coverage of food security and other development issues, visit guardian.co.uk forward slash global development. My thanks to Barbara Stocking, JRT Gosh and Charles Godfrey. I'm Madeleine Bunting. The producer was Peter Sale and the researcher was Claire Provost. great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.